Not sure what to expect or how to navigate the interview process? Want to make sure your personal statement hits the mark? AMSA's new program, Applied Match Preparation, or AMP, has been created just for you. Get personalized, one-on-one assistance from a team of experts and get ready to shine during the application process. Visit amsa.org amsa-amp to get started today. What have you heard about primary care? That there's too much paperwork? Or that you're too smart to get into it? Or paradoxically, that there's too much to learn? Welcome to the AMSA AdLib Podcast, where we'll hear from med students and experts alike. I'm your host, Christine Camizio. In the spirit of National Primary Care Week, let's talk about the so-called stigma of primary care and its effects on med students' career choices. Malika Subberwall's initial interest in primary care came from working at a student-run safety net clinic at the University of Florida, serving Gainesville and parts of rural North Florida. The clinic saw most patients on a regular basis for refills on diabetes medications or annual physical exams. Here's Malika. Patients felt comfortable with the student and physician volunteers. Um, Even if we met our daily limit and had to turn someone away, people understood and rarely got upset with the situation. She continued volunteering after college and came to realize that the safety net clinic addressed things that most clinics don't really ask about, like food security. And through the volunteering experience, I realized I want to become a physician who works with the community and utilizes its resources to the advantage of the people in that community. So that led me to primary care. But when she started medical school, she heard about this primary care stigma. I found that classmates would settle on a general specialty depending on their step score. And in the introduction to clinical medicine class, we would always discuss how primary care physicians have higher rates of physician burnout and how the impending shortage of primary care physicians would cause current PCPs to have a greater patient load, increasing burnout rates and decreasing job satisfaction. It's discouraging to hear all that, but then seeing super enthusiastic primary care physicians in practice who love their jobs and wouldn't think of doing anything else is so inspirational. One of those inspiring primary care physicians, Malika says, is Dr. Wanda Feiler. My name is Wanda Feiler. I see patients in York, Pennsylvania at Family First Health. Dr. Feiler is the past president of the American Academy of Family Physicians and now serves as board chair. AMSA's Diana Huang caught up with her at the AAFP's national conference during Dr. Filer's term as president. Here's Diana. My name's Diana Huang. I'm a fourth-year medical student at Temple University School of Medicine, and I'm planning on going into family medicine. First, what motivated you to pursue primary care and become a family physician? Well, Diana, actually, when I was a senior in high school, I spent some time with a family physician um, for about 12 weeks in the afternoons, uh, courtesy of the Pennsylvania Department of Education. And But then when I got to medical school in my freshman year, they got rid of the Department of Family Medicine. And um, I think the implicit message to students was it's not a viable career. So I actually ended up matching in general surgery. And partway through my general surgery um, internship, I thought, I really don't want to do this for my, the rest of my life. I, like, I didn't want to see those one-off patients. I like to see what happens at the end of the story. I want to see the relationships, and I want to be able to take care of the whole person, not simply do a, a surgery. And frankly, I was not intellectually um, satisfied in, in surgery. And I cast about for a little while trying to figure out what I want to do, and I knew I didn't want to do only OB because I didn't want to take care of, of women only. I didn't want to do pediatrics because I didn't want to take care of children. I wanted to take care of everybody. 
and suddenly this light bulb went on um, and thinking back to what I had experienced in high school and then after match day my senior year I'd done a rotation in family medicine and as soon as I realized that that was a career that was very practical um, I knew I was home and um, and what I've discovered is it's a perfect marriage for me of both the the scientific rigor but also the relationships and taking care of the whole person regardless of, of organ system um, I can do more than one organ system at a time I can take care of people from from beginning of life to end of life and that's a gift and I, I really enjoy that plus it lets me be an advocate and I love advocacy work and I've been able to really deploy that uh, as a family physician Wow have you experienced primary care stigma? How do you respond to it? Um, primary care stigma makes me laugh because when I talk, you know, 30 years ago, I heard students being told, you're too smart to go into family medicine. And today, um, students are still hearing that malarkey. Um, I think the other, the flip side of that now, now is that people are saying there's too much to know. Well, which is it? You can't have it both ways. And as from what I have seen, the countries of the world that do the best health care at, at, with the best outcomes for patients and do so at a much lower price than we're spending in this country, they do it with a strong primary care backbone. And this country is way off track in its health care. We have become fragmented, way over specialized. At least 40% of our health care dollars are unnecessary and duplicative maybe even harmful care. And I don't think we're doing right by this country by having so many specialists out there. And my husband's a specialist. I love the man dearly. But we need a much stronger primary care workforce. Policymakers know that. The American public now knows that. And th our day has come. And so I don't worry about the stigma because as far as I'm concerned, I take care of the whole person and not just one organ system. So you've been hearing this for a long time. Have you seen people's reaction to uh, your response to primary care stigma change over the years? I've seen the change in the policy and the legislative arena. I think they get it now. They realize that the way to fix an, a broken American health care system is, is to look to family medicine, and, there, and there's a lot of movement in our direction. Um, patients have understood all along. As I, you know, I spent 18 years on an NBC affiliate in central Pennsylvania, and people would say to me, will you talk about so many different topics. What kind of physician are you? And I would say family medicine. Good for you was the answer that I got. Now I do have a couple of, I have one specialty colleague um, just a couple years ago call me and he got a little bit snarky on the phone and I reminded him that I'm capable of taking care of more than one organ system across a lifespan and that if he'd like me to teach him how to do what he was uh, implying then I'd be happy to do so. And needless to say that conversation didn't go a lot further. <laughs> Have you seen increased physician burnout rates and decreased job satisfaction among primary care physicians? How do you address that? We, we are seeing across the house of medicine, not simply family medicine, we are seeing um, a lot of burnout. In fact, I did a, a lecture on that in Michigan um, a week and a half ago. But um, and family medicine is actually not the worst in terms of, of burnout. Um, and it's something that we're working really hard to address as the academy. It's, we've taken it on as one of our big priorities for family physicians. Um, but again, there's a we're in the midst of a very rapid change in American medicine. And that change is very disconcerting and scary for many people. Um, I'm actually pretty optimistic. And, and I'm, we're on the right side of that equation from my perspective, it being in family medicine and being in primary care in general. But an awful lot of people are very scared of, of what's going on. They're, they're tired. Um, they want to get off that hamster wheel. And I, as we see the shift to value-based payment, um, we very much believe that family physicians will get off that hamster wheel. You'll start to get paid for that in-between time. And you'll be able to kind of do the, the type of care that you went to medical school to do, that full spectrum, um, because frankly, that's 
that's what this country needs. Healthcare is bankrupting America, and these are monies that could be better spent on education, on infrastructure, on housing, on food, and a lot of the social determinants of health. So we've also really redoubled our efforts on that. And I find that family physicians, when they're involved in organizations and they get involved in fixing the other things that ail their communities, a lot of those social determinants, it reinvigorates them because that's who we are. And and finding ways to work better and, and be effective change agents. So that's a lot of the work we're doing, both as an academy, our state chapters, and many of our members. I'm also hearing some renewed optimism from people that are in new models of care that they love, absolutely love. In fact, I had a conversation a few minutes ago um, and, and one person who just told me that even his fourth grader said, Nat, Daddy, I want to go into medicine now because he's seen his father have joy back in practice. And that's what we're working to get for everybody. That's great. Given the current trend towards subspecialization, how do you encourage students to pursue primary care? What I like to say to students is family medicine is not a safety choice. I only want you in family medicine if you are going to be a lifelong learner, if you're going to be passionate about the care of the patient in front of you, if when you walk into that exam room you realize that you are not the most important person in that room. I want you if you recognize that you can, you, you're ready to take on more, you're choosing a bigger career. You're choosing a career where you not only will take care of patients across the lifespan, you sometimes will speak at their funerals, you sometimes will go to the bedside at their home, you, they will hug you when they need you, they will call you, and you're choosing to be there for those people. Um, it's an incredible gift to be a family physician. It's an incredible career, and, and I've done all those things I just mentioned, and I've, and I've experienced it firsthand, and it's really extraordinary. But I've also had the chance to do television, I've had the chance to serve as the Physician General of Pennsylvania, President of the American Cancer Society, and now the AAFP. And you use that broad system knowledge and the, and the interrelatedness of, of our patients as well as broader systems in the community to be a change agent. And this is a movement. And I think um, if people are ready to roll up their sleeves and take care of America, this is where you need to be. You have a long history as a physician advocate. Can you tell us about advocacy initiatives you're working on right now and how advocacy can be a part of primary care practice? I love advocacy work, and a lot of my advocacy work has been around the public health um, factors. And probably the biggest example, about 25 years ago, I had an entire family of patients that were murdered, um, a woman named Valerie Gamboa Taylor. And I had just seen Valerie in the newborn, uh, within, in the hospital, she had had a newborn, and I saw her baby in the newborn nursery. When that baby was uh, very young, um, Paul killed his wife, their other children, his mother-in-law, and her two-year-old. And I remember my partner vividly dictating into her machine and crying for all of these people that were lost. He stopped and fed the baby in the process and now sits on death row in Pennsylvania. And she, but my partner turned to me and she said, this is a family I thought could make a difference. And for me, they have. I have traveled all over the country. I continue to do so, talking about um, intimate partner violence, um, also now child sexual assault and sexual assault prevention, um, something called the ACE study, the Adverse Childhood Experiences Study, which I think is absolutely pivotal in the way we look at our patients and, and probably the biggest public health impacts that are, imp that are affecting the health of this nation. And so I try to um, talk to family physicians about that. I chair a, a project, uh, um, I should say I'm an honorary chair of a project right now in Pennsylvania called Vision of Hope. 
which is to um, raise money to fund research projects um, to reduce child sexual assault. One out of four girls, one out of five to six boys before the age of 18, and it has lifetime, lifetime implications for many of them, including a lot of the people I care for every single day, and that every physician sees, we just don't know what we're seeing. And so that's a big part of it. I've done a lot of work around immunizations. I've done a lot of work around cancer control clean indoor air, um, colorectal cancer screening. So lots of different projects. That's what being a family physician is. You tend to have lots of intellectual curiosity and you learn along the way and it, and it motivates you to, uh, to move. Can you talk a little bit more about the Adverse Childhood Experiences Study and how you can use that in your, in your clinic experience? I think I would encourage people to learn about the ACE study, um, Adverse Childhood Experiences Study. It was a study done um, in the Kaiser Permanente system back in the mid-90s on 17,000 people. And these 17,000 people were roughly half and half male and female. Um, the majority of them had at least some college education. They tended to be a middle-class um, group. And they asked these people to self-report whether they'd had any of these experiences in childhood. And they were things such as um, seeing drug use in the home, watching your mother be assaulted, um, parents not being together, that you were subjected to sexual assault or physical or um, mental trauma. And the numbers are extraordinary. And these people were self-reporting. And they then tracked those people over the next 20 plus years and continue to track them. And what they found is that the people, the higher, you got one point for each each thing you answered yes to. The higher your ACE score went, the shorter your life became. Direct correlations to ischemic heart disease, direct correlations to um, high-risk um, personal health behaviors, teen pregnancy, substance abuse, morbid obesity, anxiety, depression, um, just extraordinary correlations um, with these adverse childhood experiences scores. So what do we do as family physicians to recognize that in our patients and help to develop systems that are called trauma-informed, where both in the office we understand um, how these patients, that they're not non-compliant, that they may not feel that they're worthy of being cared for or that going to a dentist or a gynecologist or having a colonoscopy done has them reliving their trauma, traumatic experiences in various body orifices when they were younger. And this is not necessarily noncompliance. There may be a whole forest that we're not seeing um, in these patients because we're standing too close to the trees. And really thinking about building that resiliency and, and changing a community and this country that values children that protects children, um, that's important work. In the current political climate, why is primary care important? Right now we spend far more in health care in this country than any other developed nation. Our, the percentage of our gro uh, gross domestic product that is spent in health care is ridiculous. And it's, as I said earlier, it's bankrupting this country. Um, many people have recognized that, and yet our outcomes are not good. We, it's embarrassing. I mean, we rank pretty much at the bottom of all developed nations, and it's because we're too fragmented. We've got too much specialty care and not enough primary care. And there's even, there's, if you look at the state of Rhode Island, they've shown that as they increased their spend because of legislation, they increased their spend of their health care dollar on primary care. With every percentage point they went up, their total spend went down and their outcomes improved and their patient satisfaction improved. And so people understand now when you look at in, in public policy and you look at um, how we need to redesign American health care that it's going to be by strengthening primary care. It's going to be teams. It's going to be 
family physicians, nurse practitioners, physician assistants, all collectively deployed in teams working to care for America. And family docs do one out of five U.S. offices. It's we can do this. We, we do it in places where nobody else sometimes works. And we take care of people that other people often never see. Um, so we are really a, a force for change and a force for, I think, helping this country kind of redirect its resources so that it can, it can use them for other things that are just as important. Thank you so much for your time, for this interview, and for your thoughtful answers. What is your message to pre-medical and medical students considering primary care this National Primary Care Week? Family medicine is a fabulous career. Um, this country needs you. It needs you to be engaged. It needs all hands on deck. We need as many medical students choosing a career in family medicine as we possibly can. Most studies indicate that we need at least 40 to 50 percent of our student workforce in primary care and specifically in family medicine is a big part of that because we also do children and, and adults. You get the whole package if you will. Um, so and I, I would say when you choose family medicine, you choose more, and you choose what I find to be a very noble career. And it's and not to mention the fact that it's a lot of fun. We tend to celebrate each other. It's a family. And even at our meetings, it's a family. And, we, and if that's the kind of career that you're looking for and you want to know that you can make a difference in the world, this is the place to be. Thank you so much. AMSA AdLib is brought to you by the American Medical Student Association. I'm your host, Christine Camizio. This episode was produced by Pete Thompson, myself, Diana Huang, and Malika Subberwal. Joshua Caulfield is the show's executive producer, and Dr. Kelly Tibbert is AMSA's national president. Are you nervous about funding your way through the residency interview trail? Maybe you hadn't thought about it yet. Tune in next week to hear from current residents and how they manage their funds along the trail not long ago. We hope you enjoyed this episode, and thank you for listening. How can you sharpen your competitive edge? Learn how to land your first choice residency, take part in clinical skill building sessions, and debate emerging issues in healthcare. Join us for AMSA's fall conferences October 15th through the 16th in Puerto Rico and November 19th through the 20th in New York City. Visit amsafallconference.org to register now.